Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. C'est étrange. Je ne sais pas ce qui m'arrive ce soir. Je te regarde comme pour la première fois. Encore des mots, toujours des mots, les mêmes mots. Je ne sais plus comment te dire. Rien que des mots. Mais tu as cette belle histoire d'amour que je ne cesserai jamais de lire. Des mots faciles, des mots fragiles, c'était trop beau. Tu es d'hier et de demain. Bien trop beau. Yeah, we're just sort of observing yesterday's election results, which obviously are complex election results. I'm talking about, of course, the vote in East Timor. Not really. Although East Timor did have an election yesterday. I just don't know any good East Timorian music to play. So, uh, but anyway, you'll see so you hear a little bit of French music on the show today. It is Ask or Tell Me Anything, which people have already divined. The number is 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. Not only is it the day after the French election, it's also the birthday of Joe Buck. And I would like to say something. I want to say something. I don't know if I've ever said this. I have no problem with Joe Buck. I don't even quite understand what the problem with Joe Buck is. But I do enjoy jokes at the expense of Joe Buck. And I'm wondering whether that's okay. I'm wondering, I I hate to open another can of worms because the whole shopping cart thing was like a two-week nightmare for me. I'm still, I got a postcard. I think it's in my bag right now. I got a postcard from a guy condemning me. Like, he went to the trouble of sending a postcard. You know, he had to write something on a small square, a rectangle of paper, or affix a stamp to it and everything. So anyway, so I don't want to go back there. But I do want to say that I, I question my own ethics. If I don't really see a big problem with Joe Buck, but I enjoy making people making fun of Joe Buck, that can't possibly be right or moral. Uh, so there. I have a lot of other things I want to talk about, but then this isn't, these shows are not called, Colin talks about a lot of things he wants to talk about. That's not, they're called Ask or Tell Me Anything. So I, I won't talk about what I want to talk about. I'm going to talk about what you want to talk about. I also want to mention, because I don't remember to do it every time, and also things are about to fall off this desk as I reach for them. I have two here. I have two envelopes from Mr. Carp. These are envelopes from Mr. Carp. Now, Mr. Carp, if we were to review, is possibly the smartest human being I've ever met. But what he does these days, for reasons that only he understands, is to clip things out of physical publications and place them in envelopes, which he has repurposed, and put stamps on them and send them to me and to other people, too. I'm not the only person who gets these. I am the only person who gets these who makes them available to the wider public. All right? But the only way that I can open one of these envelopes is if you ask me to. If you call and you ask me to, I will open one of these envelopes. 
<laughs> I'm kind of waggling them in the air in a way that amuses me. Uh, then I will open them. When I first did this, I would like to say that Jonathan McPants, who's producing this episode and call screening and all this stuff, he didn't actually believe I had envelopes that were sealed that I never opened that I was prepared to open on the air. But I am, and I do, and I will, and then I will attempt to discuss what's in the envelope. So there. Okay. Uh, wow, we got all kinds of things. Wow, this is like, this is the truly diverse set of calls here. So I'm just going to take the first one on the list. Uh, here's Scott in Wallingford. Hi, Scott. Oh, where's Scott? Scott, where are you, man? Are you still there? Scott. Uh, should I put him back? I guess I have to put him on hold. Scott, try to figure out how your phone works because I was prepared to talk. Well, I'm going to try it one more time. I'm going to, I was prepared to talk about music in 1972 with Scott. So, and I still want to. Scott, are you there? I'm here. There you go. There you go. Phew. Testing. One, two, three. I was so worried. I was so worried. All right. So what are we going to talk about? Music. Music. There's so much heavy stuff in the world. And, you know, I'm a big music fan. And back in 1972, so many great um, albums came out in the world of rock um, Mm -hmm. that they are now celebrating the 50th anniversary of those well, but besides be- besides "Thick as a Brick" by Jethro Tull, was anything else significant released? Oh come on! <laughs> that well, was that was a joke. Like, yeah, good bands like Yes, you know, we had um, Jethro Tull, as you mentioned, Steely Dan's first album. How about that? Genesis, um, Frank Zappa was putting out stuff. Hey, trace this phone call and make sure it isn't John Dankowski. Um, because it's getting a little suspicious here. You so far have not you have not named what I believe is probably the best album from 1972. But go ahead, continue if you. I should say also last year it was like Blue and and Tapestry and so so every year there's 50th anniversaries of really good yeah, albums. Exactly. But, but but I would say if you have not in this amount of time mentioned music. Well, wait, you, you keep you oh. cut me off twice so far. I'm sorry. I'm terribly sorry. I apologize. But I'm, and I'm not reading this or anything. This is coming from memory. Um, yeah. So um, Frank Zappa, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, um, Bob Dylan, uh, Jeff Beck, had all, all these, Pink Floyd. Um, there you go. Now let's hear what you can remember that I neglected. Well, I think the only one that I would just insist be included and possibly vaulted to the top of the list is Music of My Mind by Stevie Wonder, which I believe was the pivotal album not only for Stevie Wonder, but maybe for music, definitely for what we had been thinking of as soul music. Uh, And and it's Stevie kind of taking charge, too, of his own artistic vision in a way that would then play out with a whole series of of other different albums. But that was the pivot, I think, away from being strictly a Motown artist and and being instead, instead his own guy. So... But I think this is a lovely way to begin. I wish we had some of that music primed and ready to go so that we could play it for people. But we, we don't and we can't and we will just we'll have to continue somehow. We'll have to press we'll have to press on. All right. So we like to get uh, a mix of people on the air, uh, people with uh, X and Y chromosomes, people with two X chromosomes. Anybody's got a, like a T or an L chromosome, that's fine too. But let's talk to Eileen in Norwich. Hi, Eileen. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, my concern is a little more serious. It is about what children are doing with cell phones in school. Um, young kids, even as young as, say, second grade. Now, I don't, this is not just, I don't want you to think about just Norwich. This is several different districts that I know of. 
that children are bringing cell phones into school um, and they are older children are sharing porn with other kids. And I know firsthand, I mean, well, from, from my colleagues, I'm a retired teacher, um, that this is happening. Now, there's something called an airdrop where kids can get some porn on their phone and then they, I don't know if it's just iPhones or what it is, but they're able to, to send it to anyone like on a bus. This is happening on the buses and also in the classroom. Um, where kids can see, you know, automatically, you don't have to click onto it, but you can automatically, you, you, you can see a porn picture. Now, I think parents need to be a little more concerned about that versus, you know, critical race theory and what books are being read to their children. That, that's not a concern. It's the cell phones. Um, I think that parents should ask themselves now, how old should, what, what is an appropriate age for children to get phones? Well, the answer should be when you, when your child is old enough to see porn, because they will. Uh, that's that's my concern. And I, I really wish that the parents would, in, in every district, would come to their board of ed meetings and say, please have strict guidelines about not bringing phones into school, if, into the classroom. They should be left in their backpacks. They should be, um, you know, if they, they bring them into the classroom, which the kids always do, they should be immediately taken away and brought to the office, and, you know, parents should pick them up. Well, yeah. Also, there are, like, theater things now where you surrender your cell phone and it gets oh, stu- stuck absolutely. in I mean, some kind of special yeah. envelope and stuff, and then you, you can't get it back until yeah. the end. You know, I, I don't see any reason why there would need to be uh, uh, smartphones or cell phones or, or whatever in children's hands in the classroom. It is... Well, I have to tell you the truth. And I, Now, um, I know that there are high school teachers that are using the cell phones for lessons and so forth. Of course, there should be, you know, exceptions for that. But I, I, I'm telling you, it's out of hand. I'm, I'm hearing all of these stories from teachers who have seen this firsthand that these kids are just, you know, and you can't control it. I mean, you slip a full cell phone into your pocket. The teacher doesn't know it's there. The teachers don't have a, um, you know, they can't pat down the kids and see who has a cell phone. Um, so, you know, I'm thinking about my young grandkids getting on the bus and somebody, you know, somebody next to them having a cell phone and uh, showing a picture that somebody just dropped. I mean, this is crazy. It's just craziness. This is what parents should be concerned about. How old, do you, how old do you think these kids are who are doing this? Um, I oh, mean, yeah. Well, there is. I know a teacher who teaches second grade. Oh, my God. Who's, um, who's, who is second grader, brings it in. Yes. And there are half the kids in another. I have another teacher friend in another district. She teaches fourth grade, and half the kids have cell phones. Well, I was twenty. I was twenty-seven years old before I would have even understood what was taking place in pornography. So I, I yeah. this is too young, uh, and and yeah, I mean, I think your point is a good one too. I unfortunately think that the people that you're talking about who are worried about, you know, things that might be covered under that Florida law, I think they probably would say, well, as long as it's not LGBTQ porn, it's fine with me. Boys will be boys. Uh, but no, I, I think you're making a very valid point here. And all right, so <laughs> the number I should I shouldn't give the number. We have too many calls already. Um, all right, so and they all look kind of interesting. Oh, let's do this one. Though. This one, I bet you this one's going to be good. Oh, this is Dave from Lake Como, Lake Como, uh, Ohio, where there's in fact an, a, a perfect reproduction of uh, Lake Como from Italy. Uh, Absolutely, and, we're just hoping the uh, toxic algae doesn't get too bad. Right? No, they shot all the succession scenes that were in Lake Como actually in Ohio. People don't know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's cheaper here yeah. than, you know, to go to actual Ecobo. So we've ta- thanks for taking my call. We've talked before about various irritating conversational tics or affectations, you know, that 
you're right, they usually go away or you get used to them or, or whatever. But sort of related to that, for the umpteenth time the other day, I heard a newscaster talking some story about Russia say like three times in the story, Vladimir Putin. And, you know, I think they said, you know, various other things with this hard glottal stop that is something that I just cannot get used to. It makes my skin crawl when I hear it. You know, something is not important. It's important. Or, you know, it's uh, and you know, all the words. I'm not sure if John McWhorter has written on this. I haven't come across it. But a friend of mine says that she thinks it's actually regional from somewhere in Connecticut. Yes, there's I, a, there is I, a theory. I, I do know something about this, which is there is a theory, and it's just that, a theory in linguistics, that this did start, believe it or not, in New Britain, uh, in, in that kind of general region, and that I think maybe factory workers or some other kind of laborers fanned out from there, kind of out towards the Western Reserve and uh, up towards uh, the the Eastern Great Lakes, and that it spread in that direction, uh, that there was a very specific kind of New Britain accent uh, that, that moved out in that direction. I don't know that there's like a huge amount of proof of this, but I did, like a decade or so ago, I remember reading about this. And I'm thrilled that I remember anything from a decade or so ago because I'm Absolutely. getting stupider and more disconnected from reality. So that that's good news. But yeah, I don't know. You know, it is absolutely true. And it is, I, if you raise kids in central Connecticut, you could pretty much, you know, circle the date on the calendar when they suddenly start talking about kitten and mitten and all this kind of stuff. And, and I don't know what there is to be done about it. it it's infelicitous sounding. I agree. I, 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 you know, and if I were a hiring manager, which I am not, you know, I would go, um, you know, no obscenities, but I would go full Glenn Gary on them and say, you know, I'm here on a mission of mercy, you know, learn to speak like in a work setting or certainly in a broadcast setting, and I'm not trying to hurt anybody. Um, and it doesn't mean someone's not smart or educated, but it's just to my ear, it's a, it's a, it's an awful sound. And I, I, maybe I need to be a better person, but I, I don't know how if it's generational or, or what. Well, I think it is somewhat. I mean, look, it's somewhat generational and somewhat not. And we should say also, since you mentioned a broadcast setting, I mean, I think one of the things that has to happen when I came to public radio, which was in 2009. I didn't sound very much like most people on public radio, and I probably still don't sound very much like people on public public radio, but I just sort of thought, okay, I am who I am. You're just going to have to put up with me. Uh, and I'm sure I do all kinds of things that bother people. I know I do. I hear about it. And and I think that's also true. I mean, another person who was kind of like that at the time was Mike Pesca, who was still at NPR at the time, and he didn't yeah. talk quite the way everybody else d- did, and he didn't have that kind of sonorous Robert Siegel, uh, John Dankosky kind of voice. And, and, and I don't either. And, you know, now I'm really fascinated to see how audiences deal with Aisha Roscoe, who I really am enjoying as the new host of Sunday Weekend, Sunday Weekend Edition. Yeah, that's what it's called. Uh, but she yeah. obviously doesn't talk like Robert Siegel either. Uh, and she has a, a very specific sound to her voice, which she's, I think, very smartly not trying to alter too much. And, and under certain certain I can't even say it, under certain situations, she'll modulate into 
kind of African American English, uh, yeah. and and I you know I sort of feel like well everybody should try to get used to that because it is yeah. true that what happened when you and I were growing up that Peter Jennings and Dan Rather and Tom Brokaw well maybe Tom Brokaw is a bad example but uh, pe- you know people sort of taught us a way of speaking that was the way of speaking but Americans America is a much more party-colored, multifarious uh, linguistic tapestry. And, and I, I think you know, we have to accept that at some point. And, and uh, it's a struggle sometimes because we all have these kind of canonical ideas about what's right. I do too, even though I don't sound right. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I don't know. I would say roll with it, Dave, and just look out at the beautiful lake in front of you. Uh, and watch Alan, Alexander Skarsgård zooming by for his appointment with the Roy family and just think to yourself, you know, life is good. Whether people say kitten or kitten, <laughs> life is exactly as good either way. That's what that's what I would do anyway. That would be my philosophy. Oh, wow, look at all this stuff. So, um, all right. I don't even know what some of these things could possibly be. Let's, but let's find out. That's part of the fun. It's like Christmas and we're unwrapping presents. Here's John from somewhere. How- Howard's something? Hi, John. You're on the air. Yeah, hi, Colin. Hey, uh, yeah, I'm listening more. John, you remember me from the old days? But uh, mm-hmm. uh, Yeah, I'm here at the bookstore, Howard's Bookstore in downtown Torrington. And so I just want to talk about, um, you know, inner city retail <clears throat> a little bit as sort of the tale of all cities. But, um, you know, the thing is, is that... Um, you know, we really have, we're struggling in inner cities and, and connected in controlling our fate. Uh, it's this feeling that we don't control our fate, but we're actually a 70% um, consumer economy. And if you think about that, <laughs> you know, as consumers, we have all the power. Yeah, you do. So tell me, tell me where you're headed with this. I'm, I'm 100, not 100% following where you're going. Well, where I'm heading with it is, is that, I, I mean, I think we can agree that um, inner, not just Torrington, but inner cities on the whole in Connecticut are struggling, uh, you know, to put it mildly. Mm-hmm. And then every, everyone comes up with, um, you know, pretty intricate, you know, kind of creative, uh, you know, city planner solutions off the cuff type of thing. Uh, but what I'm getting at, um, you know, from experience, I mean, I'm at the bookstore right now, Howard's Bookstore. Um, uh, but it really comes down to, um, you know, customers coming in and buying a book, <laughs> It's not real complicated, and that's a in my store that's a seven to ten dollar expenditure, and and uh, we actually control that uh, where we shop. It's not the government, it's not any conspiracy, uh, none of that. It's just where you decide to shop. And so I guess I'm making a little bit of plug to you know listeners, uh, and, and a lot of people do. A lot of people really give a lot of thought to how and where they shop. Um, but also I think at some point we're going to have to be genuinely innovative. Yes, I mean all around, all true, all around. Although bookstores, so independent bookstores are an, a somewhat unusual case in the sense that they began to have to cope with this stuff sooner than a lot of other kinds of institutions. And, and by that I mean the the arrival of Barnes and Noble, the arri- arrival of the now departed Borders, uh, the now departed Walden Books. So these chain bookstores that could uh, do their purchasing differently and do their discounting differently and stuff like that, get themselves installed in malls where everybody was shopping at the time uh, in, in other high visibility places. And so people started to gravitate towards those to the detriment of the independent bookseller. And then, of course, Amazon came along and we really had some big problems. So, but I think ultimately people also do, I I look to, 
you know, here in Connecticut, I mean, we have some, you know, very well-known, successful, uh, you know, starting probably with uh, R.J. Julia, uh, we have some really well-known, successful bookstores. And I think people, once the pandemic's really, really, really over, people are going to come back because they're craving the human contact. You cannot have a conversation with someone at the, someone at the cash register at Amazon. Uh, you know, and and you you want to do that, and you want to see the little hand ballpoint handwritten index card that's taped up to the bookshelf that says, "Oh, well, John from the staff really liked this book, and here's why." There's all those kinds of tactile and and visual and sensory experiences that you have when you do shop, and if bookstores do a good job of that, and I think independent bookstores because they've been living with these problems for a long time, they are more creative, and they will have you know folk night there. In the middle of the room, you know, and make up some coffee or whatever. I think books, independent bookstores, in a way, kind of got out ahead of this. And I think also people started to realize what was in jeopardy uh, and started to support independent bookstores. Now, I, the question is, does that, how far out does that extend? I think we also know we want to go to our local coffee roaster, not to Starbucks, you know, most of the time anyway. Uh, and but how far out does it go? When you need something else, you need something fast, you need a piece of hardware, you need, you know, and and so there. But the other thing that you're talking about is the urban experience of walking around from store to store. You know, there's parts of Montreal that I really like just for that reason, you know, that you can walk. There's like a two block area. I think it's Rue Notre Dame West where you're just like one interesting store after another, or Valencia Street in San Francisco, like boom, 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 you know? And and so if you like cities, you like walking around in cities, you like the serendipity of it too. You like the idea that you don't even know where you're going. You don't even know what store you're going to walk into or what you might see in that store. Um, and, and that's its own kind of pleasure. And we have to make sure that we, A, recover it as we become less sequestered, and B, Learn. Uh, don't forget to love it. Don't forget to choose it, uh, because it's easy to think. You know what? I just had an idea of something I want. I'm going to type it into Amazon. And really, you're almost talking about a categorically different experience. All right. Why don't we take a break? There's lots of calls. I dare. Well, I'll give out the phone number. What the heck? Eight 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 seven two zero WNPR. Eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven. Remember the words or. Parts that you saved Or carousel horses Or all the summer babes Or off in the distance Remember me too Cause I can still hear you Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. 
Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevatinghealth. That's Albert King. It's the second time we've played Albert King in less than a week after perhaps going, having gone 12 years without playing him. But it's his birthday today, which raises the question, well, was he born under a bad sign or not? I mean, it was his birthday. He's the same birthday as Joe Buck. Also, you know who else... <laughs> You know who else was born today? Mr. Celsius. Dr. Celsius? I don't know. Is it Anders Celsius? I don't know. Whoever whoever invented Celsius. It's his birthday today. How can, how can these people be born under a bad sign? Uh, all right. So anyway, that's all. But anyway, we did play Albert uh, King last week on Sarah Gasparato's uh, excellent astrology and astronomy show. So there we go. Uh, all right. It's time to do more of Ask or Tell Me Anything. My goodness, people are calling in about every single thing you could possibly imagine. Let's go to Adrienne in West Hartford. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, Colin. So um, I just checked it out. Uh, in 1990, February 9th, James Baker, then Secretary of State, promised Gorbachev that in return for his tearing down the Berlin Wall and opening up Germany, uh, NATO would not advance one inch eastward. So we are playing with fire if we let uh, Finland and Sweden into NATO at this point. It's just going to aggravate. It's just going to pour kerosene on that whole disaster that's Ukraine right now. That's an interesting—I mean, I don't know how binding that promise would have been. It's a promise made to basically a government and a nation that doesn't really exist in that form anymore— uh, so I, I don't know. I mean, yes, it, it does appear that Sweden and Finland are going to kind of jointly apply to join NATO, which is, it's weird that they, it's, you know, I mean, this is a very gendered thing and I apologize for saying it, but it is sort of true in a gendered way. It's sort of like, you know, if you got two couples go out to dinner, the women will always go to the bathroom at the same time. They'll always say they'll both go to the bathroom, you know? <laughs> And it's like Sweden and Finland, or Sweden's going. You want to you want to join NATO? Yeah, let's join it together. Okay, let's right now. Let's join together. Um, and obviously, the reason the reason they want to join together is because they just figured out what it means if you're not in NATO. Um, right, right. So, so I I don't know. I don't have a strong opinion about it one way or another. But but props to you 
for pulling up that history because I certainly didn't know that. I didn't know that was ever a part of any kind of conversation. So, Adrian, excellent work on your part. And since we're on that general topic in that part of the world, let's go to Mike in Woodbury. Hi, Mike. Hi, how you doing? Good. Um, so, you know, the, the big question, I think, is what do we, and by we I mean, you know, the Biden administration, do if, God forbid, Vladimir Putin should use a, with what they call, you know, a tactical or a battlefield, which, you know, a smaller yield nuclear weapon in the war of uh, in uh, Ukraine, either literally, you know, using it on Ukraine, or even if if it's just a demonstration, you know, send it out over the Black Sea or something like that. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously they're discussing this. They have to. They better be. But I can't imagine what a, a good response would be. I mean, there probably is no such thing as a good response. It's just you know what, which is which is worse. But they can't. You can't do nothing. Sanctions, more sanctions. That's not going to do anything. I mean, but if you obviously, if you do in, in kind, then you've started World War Three. So, you know, what what is the solution if he does that? God forbid, which he might, because he's you know losing the war conventionally. Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's it's certainly a fair question. I, I I will say this: that nobody, including me, should make the mistake of saying, "Oh, Putin will never do X," because Putin has already proven that he is capable of embracing alternatives that would strike most of us as as wrong. Um, having said that, this is not something that currently keeps me up nights, and I'll tell you why. There isn't really, although the idea of testing it over the Black Sea is maybe a, interesting and a little bit different, but there's really no huge advantage. There's no upside, really, to using a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine if you're trying to reclaim Ukraine. And the other thing is, although Putin does seem unbound by almost anything. There are other people sitting at that table. And, and you know, Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, who uh, was on the gist last week and I thought said, said some really interesting stuff, he said, look, they can imagine a post-Putin world. It's coming. There's going to be a post-Putin Russia. And they're not going to let him do anything he wants, to, anything he wants to do. And this thing that he already decided to do is just working out so unexpectedly badly that, uh, you know, his ability to to draw any card he wants to now has probably deteriorated a little bit. So, I, I, you know, you sort of think, well, w- would anybody else in that room be willing to let him do that? Uh, and then, of course, we have to ask. Yeah, go ahead. Well, that is the that is the question. Uh, that is the question. Although I would point out that if they can't stop him, that puts them in the category with us. Because, as you may recall, and this came up a lot during the Trump era, it really turns out that if the president wants to get the nuclear football and launch stuff, there is literally no protocol for stopping him. We really need to put that in here in America if we're going to worry yep. about Putin. Because we had a guy Absolutely. for four years who was not the most stable genius in the world, no matter what he claimed. And, and we really had no plan. There is, I mean, other than Tillerson and Matt is talking about maybe they would tackle him or something. But <laughs> right. but constitutionally, there is, we have no way of stopping an unhinged president from deploying nukes. So we should also a little bit worry a little bit about that at home. The one thing that I will say, as long as you've raised this, because it's been on my mind a bit, since listening to Ben Hodges is, I think that's his name, um, that, first of all, I also have to say, 
not directly to you, Mike, but to the world, that Anders Celsius, it is Anders Celsius, he wasn't born today, he died on April 25th, that's what it was. Anyway, um, this is what Jonathan McPans does, he looks up all the things that I get wrong. <laughs> uh, anyway, back to this, I actually think, so hydrogen has been a great case for a no-fly zone, a limited no-fly fly zone. It's a no-fly zone where, you know, you don't go... Uh, air-to-ground strike anywhere outside the borders of Ukraine. But if missiles are coming up from the ground, you can hit them. You fill the air with F-35s. They were born, they were created to do this kind uh, of air patrolling. And, and you just say, you know what? Enough is enough. We're, we're tired of you. Uh, you do whatever you want to do within the borders of Russia. But if you do stuff in Ukraine, we're going to hit you. And you, if you fly over Ukraine uh, with warplanes, we're going to shoot those down. Uh, and, I mean, Hodges thinks what I just said, that Putin will not exercise a nuclear option, even in that situation. I realize that's a little bit raising or rolling the dice. On the other hand, how long are we going to let this guy write the script? You know, I mean, I, I'm, I grow weary of it. And I think a lot of the Ukrainians are really getting tired of him. All right. 888-720-WNPR. Oh, that, it just goes by so fast when we do these things. All right. So I'll go over here to this. We'll go in this direction. Here's John in Middletown. Hi, John. You're on the air. Hey, Colin. Um, I just want to say, first, let me just say, I don't mean this in any kind of stereo, what I'm about to say in any kind of stereotypical way. Um, so I sincerely uh, um, suggest that the uh, um, community of folks who are um, anti-gay uh, consider a world uh, without um, uh, gay artists Um uh, for centuries, uh, they've um, um, their art has uh, just um, uh, made life uh, uh, you know, terrific as far as uh, all the uh, all the creation, all the uh, all the art uh, that we've um, that we witness um, that we enjoy in our lives. So a lot of members of the uh, artistic community um, are gay, uh, and um, I just can't imagine a world without uh, their contribution. So um, I would just ask uh, the anti-gay folks out there to give, to think about that. You know, to give pause to you know just you know what kind what would our world be like without uh, uh, the gay community and their contribution to the arts. I think that's quite fair. I mean, I think most of the people that we would identify as anti-gay, and there are actually absolutely are homophobic people. We didn't get rid of homophobia. We didn't fix that problem. It might look like it from time to time, but we didn't fix that problem. You don't have to go far to find it. You don't have to drive out to Missouri or down to Alabama either. You can find it right here in Connecticut. Um, so I don't mean to suggest that that's not the case. But most of them would say, oh, I'm not anti-gay. I'm anti-teaching about it to second graders or something. That's kind of what they say. Um, you know, there's something I really want to talk about, but maybe, maybe I, well, let me just say this. No, no, you know what? I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait because there's so many other people. And because I did say this is a day to ask or tell me anything. This is not a day for me to make little speeches. So here's Alex from Enfield. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, Colin. Um, so first thing I wanted to say was uh, I really missed the wheelhouse. I hope you uh, bring back that show at some point in the future, but uh the reason I'm calling is so I, I think that Trump, he has as good of a chance as Biden of winning re-election in 2024. And a lot of people I know think that Trump will be prosecuted and um, imprisoned 
by then. And a lot of these people have thought that uh, since uh, the Mueller investigation, they keep thinking that someone is going to prosecute Trump and he's going to end up in prison. And I, even it's unlikely that he'll be indicted. And I don't know how anyone would think they could get a jury of 12 people uh, to unanimously agree when there's a good chance that probably some of them voted for him. So um, my question is, what do you think about people who think that Trump will be prosecuted? Is it just a pipe dream? And is that also, do they also think that because they are afraid that Trump could win re-election, but they don't want to confront that fear? Uh, Thanks. Well, yeah. So, well, a couple of things. First of all, I, I don't think you can ever bet the farm on a successful prosecution of Donald Trump. I think it's probably a smaller than 50 percent chance that that will happen, which, you know, I mean, the law of in- in- inevitability says that things do happen when there are rel- relatively small chances. That's how we got elected, actually. <laughs> Something that there was a relatively small chance of happening happened. Uh, so that's how he got elected in the first place. But uh, so he could still get prosecuted on the same basis, I suppose. But I, I don't Now You should know that today he was found in contempt of court in New York. He's facing $10,000 a day in fines if he doesn't turn over the records he was asked to turn over. And um, so, I mean, it's not like nobody ever does anything to him. Uh, I don't think that's why he's not going to get reelected. I don't think he's going to get nominated. That's would be my guess. My my feeling is that his power is waning uh, and that the coalition that he had it, it isn't as strong anymore. Now, a lot of that will depend on what kind of primary season this is, who else is out there in the primaries, um, and – uh, so, and, and whether, in fact, he can get himself together to, to run, even run in the primaries. So uh, I, I, I don't – when I picture 2024, it's, it's weird because right now I'm in the middle of this thing where my class – I have this poli-sci sci class at a seminar that I teach at Yale. And what we do at the end of every, every semester when we do this class is we do this kind of war games thing where I divide the class into two different groups – and I simulate a fictional campaign, and they have to come up with a media and messaging strategy for a particular candidate. So half of my class is currently working for Kamala Harris, who in this mythical fictional scenario has uh, actually been sworn in as president during the current term uh, because of a sudden Joe Biden departure. Uh, And the other half of the class is working on the campaign of Nikki Haley, who was also edged out in front of the pack so that at the end of this, we are getting a woman desi American president, uh, no matter who wins. But uh, but that's that's a fictional scenario. But I, I actually think it's going to be a complex field for the Republicans because the Republican Party at the moment is in search of a solid identity. Um, you know, Will Rogers famously said, I belong to no organized pol- political party. I'm a Democrat. But I think the Republicans are the more disorganized party right now. And, and they, the specific area of disorganization could be kind of simplified into Trump versus no Trump. Um, is is the faction that supported Trump and his policies and that kind of identity politics going to control the party, going to control the nominating process? Uh or is it somebody else? Is it a group of people who are a little bit better at kitchen table issues, which I think is what should determine the whole shape of the 2024 election? 
uh, kitchen table issues being sort of, I mean, you know, all of this stuff to go back to some other caller that we had uh, or several other callers we had today, they, you know, CRT and LGBTQ, those are alphabet soup. Uh, and the reason you have to eat alphabet soup uh, is <laughs> sounding like Trump here <laughs> is because there's no meat on the table. There's no meat on the table because, in fact, uh, the economy's bad. There's um, ways in which government can really intervene to help people. And Biden, at his best, was was that kind of guy, particularly as a campaigner. Like, whoa. You're not you're not having trouble paying off your credit card, or you're not keeping your car for an extra seventy five thousand miles, your junker car, because they teach CRT in the schools or LGBTQ issues, or because they didn't cancel, you know, Dr. Seuss or whoever they're supposed to cancel right now, or they did cancel Dr. Seuss. Um, I mean, none of that. But but when you face the realities of your life every week, every month, how are you going to get things paid for and stuff like that? It's not these culture war issues that determine it, right? It's Part of it is whether government has figured out what your true needs are and how to address them, how to help you uh, achieve some kind of semblance of a successful, nourishing, stable existence, you and your kids. So whoever can articulate those issues better, I think, should do better in almost any election, but especially in 2024. I don't think a Trump or a Trump-style candidate like candidate like DeSantis should be very successful in that process. Uh, I don't think Mike Pence should be particularly successful in that process. Uh, I don't think Pompeo would be successful in that process. So they really ought to if they're smart. I mean, they are. They have an identity crisis right now. They have to figure out who they are. They're disorganized. A a smarter choice (laughs) would be a more realistic kitchen table issues kind of party. Uh, But they don't seem very good at that right now. They like all this other crazy stuff that, you know, works well on Tucker Carlson. All right. We got to take a break. We'll come back. We'll take more calls. Les étoiles, les étoiles, les étoiles. Dites-moi étoile, pourquoi je vous regarde? Les étoiles, les étoiles, les étoiles. Dites-moi étoile, qui vous regardera? Well, so far, this has been fun, uh, and I want to thank uh, in the control room, Dylan Rays and Kat Pastor are both in there as technical producers. Jonathan McPants is in the other room, which has no name, uh, but it is a room. It's definitely a room. Uh, he's screening calls and producing, and I'm in yet a third room. So uh, thanks to all of us, I guess, uh, maybe not including me. I have to say, it's sort of a weird day. It's, if you're listening, listening to the podcast, well, if you're listening to the podcast, you don't care. You don't care. But it's So it's Monday. I'm about to finish the show at 2 o'clock, go home, and then come back in here at 4.30 to record a show with John Waters. And I feel like you kind of need to be on your game to interview John Waters for an hour. But, uh, but I believe I will be on my game. And the other way to think about it is, even if I'm tired, John Waters won't be tired. John Waters is never tired. And he's a very entertaining person. So I could probably just lob a few softballs up there and Step back. All right. I'm going to go right down this row of calls. I hope to get to everybody. Here's Peter in Wallingford. Hi, Peter. You're on the air. Or you're not. 
All right. Well, that opens up a possibility for some other lucky person who will be Eric in Cheshire. Hi, Eric. You're on the air. Uh, Colin, I want to get your feedback on um, uh, a couple or a case in Texas, uh, a recent event in Texas, where a woman who had a miscarriage uh, was uh, charged with murder uh, for having allegedly uh, performed a self-induced abortion. Uh, and then uh, those charges were dropped uh, after it was decided that had she committed the, uh, the act that she was accused of, that no law would have been violated, uh, which, which I found to be, be kind of uh, um, uh, strange. And, and also, uh, if the Supreme Court decides to overturn Roe v. Wade, uh, what do you think uh, might be the possibility uh, that more of these kinds of cases are, are going to come up? Well, I mean, there's a 100% chance that will be more cases like that. Uh, I mean, if they really overturn Roe v. Wade, I think we're heading towards kind of a modified, limited, uh, you know, handmaid's tale scenario where, in fact, I mean, there's a piece in The Atlantic, which I honestly have with me right now but haven't read because I, I was more interested in the Jonathan Haidt piece about the, uh, the new Tower of Babel. But it's called The Abortion Underground Inside the Covert Network Preparing for a Post-Roe Future. I think what you're going to see, I mean, best case scenario is you get something like that together and, you know, you meet people's needs somehow. I mean, it'll be state by state. Uh, you'll meet people's needs as best you can. But, I mean, I think what this really call, points up is abortion is a medical procedure. Uh, and it needs to be treated as a medical procedure. Uh, it needs yep. to not be done by people who can't get access to a, a basic medical procedure. And and when people do that, you get the kind of result that you're talking about. So uh, I don't know what a post-Roe future really looks like. I think ultimately because we're an adaptive society, we can make it slightly better than it is right now. The problem with this poor person right now is that she kind of got caught in the DMZ. You know, Roe hasn't been overturned. There isn't really a good plan to to deal with. Uh, I mean, there isn't a full-blown plan to deal with reduced or eliminated abortion access state by state. But um, but presumably there will be one. And, and, and it's going to mean it's going to be have to be treated as kind of a supply chain problem, too. You're going to have to be able to get people to where they can get abortions and stuff like that. But I don't know. I, I haven't thought enough about it to be talking intelligibly about it. So but anyway, thank you for your call. Keeping an eye on the clock here. Here's Christine in Greenwich. Hi, Christine. Hi. Oh, so glad to be on your show. This is a comment again about Ukraine. I just came back from Romania for a few weeks, and people would say, this is how we were living our life from Ukraine, and boom, the missile came and the building was bought. And one of the comments I remember hearing a lot of was, when Ukraine basically became more independent and gave their nukes back to Russia, the U.S. put in place that they were going to protect Ukraine. And the idea, which I'm so happy you're talking about, about the no-fly zone, really seems the most important um, issue. And I know that um, Richard Blumenthal, our senator, had talked about that as well. But that seems to be the most uh, appropriate, unless we can put the Iron Dome like they have in Israel over Ukraine as well. But uh, this, is, this is just horrible to see. It would be like our living our life and subsequently 
accessible to rainy down on us. Right. Thank you so much for talking about this. Yeah. Today. Well, thanks for bringing up some more history. Yeah, you're talking about the 1994 so-called Budapest Memorandum uh, for the brief period of time at the time of the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Ukraine was sort of arguably the third largest nuclear power in the world because there was all this Soviet-era stuff that hadn't made it back to Moscow or wherever Moscow wanted it to go. Uh, and so when Ukraine denuclearized, uh, there was a memorandum. I think the United States signed it and maybe the United Kingdom, Great Britain, something like that, signed it, saying basically, yeah, we would, we would protect them. I mean, <laughs> I'm glad people are doing this. Not just on the face of it, people are calling up about these kinds of things, but because I think one of the things that have, has died in the social media era, in the Tower of Babel era that we are living in, is context. Nobody knows anything except what has happened in the last 48 hours. Nobody knows anything about anybody except what they did in the last 48 hours or what it seems like maybe they might have done you know, in the last 48 hours. And, and social media really kind of encourages that and encourages people. I mean, there's almost no way to explain the context of anything on social media either. So to whatever extent people's, people get their information on social media and their, their beliefs about things are influenced by what they find on social media, um, you're, you're basically creating a context-free environment where nobody can ever explain anything. You know, in I mean, and as you get older, and obviously I have gotten older, you're aware of the you become more keenly aware of the fact that, the fact that you are among a select group of people who care anything about context. Like when I say lately or of late, I could conceivably mean sometime in the last five or ten years. That's what lately <laughs> means to me. I'm like an ent in, in Lord of the Rings. Um, but when you say lately or of late in the digiverse on the social medias, it means, you know, within the last 48 hours, maybe. Now, that would be an expansive view of what lately means. Anyway, I dare not take any more calls. I'm so sorry uh, to Anthony in particular, who waited quite a long time, uh, Mudasir, uh, and Peter wanted to talk about dumpsters, and then he wasn't there which is like such a dumpster kind of moment, you know? All right. Thanks to everybody who did call in. Thanks to everybody who helped out. It's time for us to go. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> 